This is Adam Manis. And I'm Peter Martin. And you're listening to the You'll Hear It podcast. Daily jazz advice coming at you. Mm. Today we're going to give you seven classical composers that have influenced jazz. Wait, I thought jazz came out of a vacuum that was just like it was New Orleans and there was a bubble over it and nobody influenced anybody. Well, it did, but you know how classical music and musicians are. They always want to come back and take the credit for it later. <laughs> I know, I hate those classical... Oh, wait, who's that sitting in front of us? Oh. <laughs> That's how we do it. <laughs> What's going on? We have a very special guest today, amazing musician and an amazing friend of ours, Mr. Sean Weil, uh, who hails from the south side of Chicago, uh, but is a longtime member of the St. Louis Symphony uh, bedrock of the violin section. So, so great to have you here today, Sean. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we have you here, Sean, because you are an encyclopedia of musical knowledge, not just classical music, which is your genre that you play, but of jazz too. And you're actually a pretty annoyingly good jazz improviser. So we brought you here to kind of hip us to some classical composers and maybe even some pieces or recordings that have influenced jazz. Uh, I know you know so much about both these things. So yeah, be, sure. Be cool I, um, I feel like the list goes on and on and on and on, but I guess we could talk about a few since you guys like to talk in sevens. Yeah, I was going to say, how about seven? You got seven on your mind by any chance? <laughs> yeah. let's, let's go way back. Well, not too, too far back, but um, I guess we could start with the late Beethoven string quartets. That's right. So number one, we have those late Beethoven string quartets. Uh, I know, Sean, you hit me to Opus 130, mm. which has like seven movements. It's got Beethoven was movements ahead of his time. The One of my all-time favorite movements of any pieces of all time yeah. is in that called the Cavatina. It's like absolutely gorgeous. Well, the thing that strikes me about all late Beethoven, but especially the string quartets, is like... It sounds like it was written yesterday. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And it, he just completely knocked down all the walls That's in true. terms of what the structure had to be. And um, especially for string quartet, he really pushed the boundaries on every level. And nothing before or since, I think. Yeah, rhythmically so ahead of his time, so complex in those first couple movements. I mean, like these these jagged rhythms, it sounds like it could be from like a piano trio record from, you know, this this century. It sounds really, Absolutely. really modern. The harmony, obviously, the voice leading. But then he hits you, in, especially in Opus 130, mm -hmm. he hits you with that cavatina. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like one of the most beautiful melodies you've ever heard. I mean, does, isn't there a story about he, like, it's the only thing that ever made him cry yeah. of it, anything it, he wrote? It's, it's, it's such a moving movement. And... Uh, it's a moving movement. It's a moving movement. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's almost a re religious experience to, yeah. to hear it. So if you only know Beethoven from, you know, da 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 and the, some of the symphonies or whatever. That's yeah, a classic too, buddy. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. That's some good thematic development right there. Classic thematic development. But no, seriously, check out these late uh, string quartets, uh, especially 130. But also, you know, 132 is awesome. 131, 131. 127. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're all incredible. And... Yeah, they're really amazing, amazing pieces. All right, so let's move on to number two. Um, and what were you thinking there, Sean? Maybe Maurice Ravel. Ah, the Franchement. Oui, oui. <laughs> absolutely. Um, J'aime Ravel. <laughs> absolutely. He was unbelievable. Um, an amazing orchestrator, an amazing 
user of instruments and sections in orchestras. Mm. Um, he knew how to pull different qualities of sound and timbres and like no one before him, I think. Yeah. Um, now, I, I, I guess this is actually, I, I used to always think of Ravel as like getting into the classical composers that were influenced by jazz. But I guess I, he was right around that borderline, right? Of Absolutely. maybe hearing some early what would be called jazz. Absolutely. And, and having that influence his music. And he had an influence on a lot of early jazz composers as well. Um, There's a famous story about Gershwin. He was a big fan of his. Mm -hmm. He went to Paris um, to meet with him. Right. Um, to study with him, possibly. And he famously asked him how much money he'd made composing his music. Oh, and, yeah. you know. Ravel thought, hey, maybe I should be studying with you. <laughs> so. He's like, hey, Mr. New York, you're doing pretty That's well right. there, buddy. That's well, it is right. amazing, though, what happens you know, once jazz kind of becomes on the scene, and now there's a feedback loop, right? Where Absolutely. classical composers are starting to be influenced. But because it's a whole different process of making music, right. then that gets back to jazz musicians to where in like, you know, Bill Evans is stealing voicings from... Ravel and from WC, not stealing. Bill, love you. <laughs> Big shout out to B E. <laughs> but but seriously influenced by the way they were stacking chords, the way they were voicing things. Absolutely, you know. absolutely. So that brings us to number well, three. I just have one quick oh, question. Sure. I, if we could linger on on Ravel number two for just a minute, we, I was thinking about you know the influence and then you know some of the kind of obvious things to a jazz musician that you'll hear uh, in some of those beautiful Ravel orchestrations is like you know he'll hit. Like a like a dominant seven, dominant nine chord, and like you know, as a classical musician, when you're going through, I mean, I know you guys are playing stuff way more modern than that, but also many things from before that period too. Does that like, I mean, is that like a jazz connotation, or is that more of a modernist kind of a sound when you're in the middle of that beauty and playing that, and kind of part of that that you know what you look back on? I guess it's kind of a harmonic revolution, really. Absolutely, um, honestly. You know, depending on who you talk to um, in the classical world, a lot of people have hyper-specialized and have only lived in that world. Mm -hmm. So to them, it's just, you know, the first of its kind in terms of opening up that harmonic end of things. Um, right. But for people who know jazz music, that's, you know, that's the ABCs, basically. Right. So right. It was also a, a regional thing, too, right? I mean, it's a very French thing. You have, like, like Cesar Franck was kind of the godfather of all this. Yeah. Um, before Ravel even, and, and people like Gabriel Fauré and uh -huh. Poulenc. The, the French Impressionists, Debussy. Yeah. yeah. And they... Van Gogh. He was... Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, but they, they did, they used all those ninth chords, all those 13th yeah. chords. Th that was just happening in that, right. in that region. That was, that was part of that kind of hazy, textural vibe that they would all produce. Yeah. And was very much classically based and it's very much classical music, but you can see how the rules of harmonic structure, you know, going all the way back before Bach's time even, you know, they just knocked the, the roof off of that. Did that sound get out of France ever? Like those 13th chords, that spacey, did that go anywhere? Were there like Norwegian composers doing that or anything? Um, Edvard Grieg, it sounded like he had a lot of, a, a pretty broad swath of, um, of influence, but 
he was a contemporary of theirs. Gotcha. Um, and different, he had a different sound, but I, I hear what you're saying, actually, yeah, yeah, now that yeah. I think about yeah, it. It's yeah. kind of a different sound. But. So that'll take us to number three, and this is another French impressionist. This is Debussy, Claude Debussy, of course, um, has been listed as an influence by Miles Davis and, again, Bill Evans and pretty much every modern jazz musician. Absolutely. Um, any and pieces in particular that jazz musicians should check out? Uh, La Mer is probably mm. his most famous orchestral work, and he would just, his use of color, Mm-hmm. Again, you know, you've had podcasts with uh, Greg Hutchinson, how you, how he talks about how you're able to produce different colors and things just from the various usage of different drums being played together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. WC was a master at just kind of um, creating this kind of bass level, and then he would have these swells that you weren't sure where they were going and they would come in and out. Use of cymbal is kind of what's coming through my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. a lot of Actual drummers especially. or symbolism? <laughs> both, both, you know, both. absolutely <laughs> both. So it's Such a symbolic use of a symbol there, yeah. Mr. Claude. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, just even seeing the way that you're, you know, describing Debussy, I think of, the influence on Duke Ellington from that standpoint, totally, orchestration, totally. sound, uh, percussion, you know, not even just like the blatant kind of harmonic or rhythmic things, but really that, that orchestra. Because, I mean, a lot of times, and if you, you know, I'm, I'm no expert on Duke Ellington, but I've heard a lot of his music over the years and played it. And whenever, you know, as great as his writing was, when you think about his big band, what he did in terms of arranging for that particular ensemble, you really get into that kind of master orchestrator Absolutely. thing above and beyond just, you know, we know WC is a great composer, but that orchestration stuff is just brilliant. Absolutely. Just brilliant. And he was one of those composers, jazz composers, who actually through composed much mm-hmm. like Debussy or Ravel yeah. or any classical composer. Yeah. Right. You right. could read you could read everything that he wanted on the page, which yep. was pretty unique to, to Duke. And he knew music too. Yeah, I mean he absolutely. he knew this. He studied this stuff too. Absolutely. Yeah. Real real student of the game. Absolutely. So that brings us to number four, and this is one of my favorite composers. So I'm so glad that you, you know, decided to include him because I mean growing up playing a lot of classical music I always gravitated even before I really got into jazz to the music of of Bela Bartok shut up BB what's up (laughs) Budapest in the house (laughs) (laughs) wait is he from Budapest he's from Budapest right or Hungary yeah definitely Hungarian so um yeah he was one who took angular rhythmic harmonic changes everything he would throw the kitchen sink at you um, and he was one of the very first to do that um, and he and Stravinsky who will be coming up pretty hey, shortly we, in this we, 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 we never give away later numbers on here this is the first time that's ever happened Stra who? <laughs> we'll get to him in a second but Bartok I mean you can hear his transition from his from very straight ahead yeah more simple rhythm harmonic Structure in his, for example, his first violin concerto. It's unbelievable. Doesn't sound like quote unquote Bartok at all. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. It's still good though. It sounds extremely classical. Yeah. But by the time he got to his second violin concerto, all bets were off, and it was a completely different thing. His concerto for orchestra is 
It was oh, revolutionary. It was yeah. unbelievable. And yeah. then I'm, maybe I'm projecting a little bit here, but I, I always thought that there was, like, you know, his as, as he got into, well, I guess he was always doing this song, but he got into it a lot later, the use of folk songs on Hungarian Absolutely. and Romanian folk song. Absolutely. And then, a huge but, influence on him. Yeah, but then, like, in, infusing them with his real modernist, rhythmic, and harmonic approach, it was almost like, you know, we're talking about Duke Ellington again, but even Thelonious Monk and using the blues, which is kind of folk, sure. American folk music, and then placing it within the jazz idiom. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's something that before his time, uh, or actually at a similar time, Mahler mm. used. Oh, yeah. A lot of folk melodies okay. all through his life. It was all autobiographical, and it what he was not above, quote-unquote, using the most you know, basic, simple tunes from his youth, you know, that go back, you know, to just the village, basically. Right, right. Too bad Mahler had such anemic orchestration, though, really. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, and the fact that he used those folk songs for 98-minute compositions That's on right. top of that. And he would not only use them, but reuse them. Yeah. Put them in different different scenarios and different orchestrations. and. Right. You know, for me, when I think Bartok, the, the pieces that pop out that have been influential to me, and I think to jazz musicians, other jazz musicians that get talked about are the concerto for orchestra and the string quartets. Absolutely. Or was it just one string quartet? No, he was, wrote was like six. Six? That were all unbelievable. Extremely challenging to play, but incredible. Sounds like you've got five to catch up on there, Adam. No, I know. <laughs> You'll hear it. It's been a minute. It's been a minute, honestly. Uh, yeah, I got to get back on my, my Bartok string quartets. But They're absolutely uh, it's incredible. a game changer. It's a game changer. It is, yeah. Wasn't there, there was also uh, the concerto for timpani. Was it? Uh, music for strings, percussion, and cellist. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's so incredible. dope. Incredible. Yeah. So incredible. dope. The yeah, colors yeah. that he was able to produce were just phenomenal, one of a kind. Yeah. So. Awesome. Well, so we'll move on here. Uh, this was, uh, was going to be the big reveal. Ah, I tipped it off early. I'm sorry, guys. So this is uh, Igor. <laughs> Igor. Don't yeah, call me Igor. Sorry, Igor Stravinsky. Igor Stravinsky, uh, one of the great composers of the 20th century. Total game changer again. Yeah, he really colluded on some wonderful <laughs> Russian music, I'd have to say. Um, so, you know, everybody thinks of the, the Firebird and, and the famous pieces. Are there any maybe rarer cuts from Stravinsky that stand out for you? as, as B-sides? B B-sides. <laughs> there were, you know, different pieces I've played orchestrally. He's written all kinds of things. He's put things in different smaller ensembles that he stretch into larger ensembles and there were no hard and fast rules with a lot of his pieces um but um like just last week i was able to play a, a piece of his called the soldier's tale which mm. has been put into many different scenarios in terms of involving dancers and having a narrator tell this story along with this septet which was highly unusual. His use of, speaking of unusual uses of timbre, I mean, he would, this ensemble was violin, bass, clarinet, bassoon, mm. trumpet, trombone, and percussion. Mm. You're not gonna hear that every day. No. I mean, you'll hear it here. Right. <laughs> you'll hear it, hey, bonus but, points for getting that in there. But hey. Um, that is an extremely challenging but but incredible work um and you know orchestrally speaking you know 
anyone's A side should include the Rite of Spring. The Rite of I mean, yeah, that, totally. that should be on anyone's top, if not top five, top ten list of all time. And I mean, speaking of being influential to jazz musicians, the Bad Plus actually like recorded a version. A very good, a very, very good, interesting record, you know, version of it. And I, yeah. I think it's like, you know, maybe some some classical theorists would say that's stretching things too far. But I think it's kind of, you know, to your point, Sean, of like Stravinsky himself placed his music in different instrumentation. Yeah, he right. could dug it. You know. Even as he as he wrote it for, say, uh, he wrote a part for cornet and then someone showed him while they were, you know, in the process of getting a, a performance together with him con conducting ready. They played it on the trumpet and asked him what he thought. He says, you know, whatever you like, you know, so <laughs> I, I don't really have an opinion either way, you know. That's right. amazing. Well, I think, too, that there is, um, you know, what I hear in Stravinsky's music, I mean, now we're definitely getting into an area where there was heavy influence and hearing, and then right. Stravinsky lived in the States for a right. long time. And, so. by, and by this time, jazz was a thing. I mean, right. absolutely. Right. And pretty it diverse. Was, it was and, very diverse, and yeah. it, was, it was the ABCs of American music. Right. And... You know, I know you'll hate hearing this, but in my mind, jazz music is, in it, in in its own way, American classical music. I mean, what are you talking about? We is, love hearing that here. That's yeah, that's yeah. that's going to be our new I mean, subline. <laughs> for, for me, I feel like the two should not be separated. Mm. I mean, I feel like there are skill sets on both sides that that would be greatly influenced. Adam. We've talked about starting. Wait, we did start a band. <laughs> we did start a little shameless, shameless self-promotion of our kind of fusing the two of our but, fusion. But I was thinking yeah. too on the um, Stravinsky. It's like he, you know, saying you know, obviously he's hearing a lot of jazz, and you can hear a lot of that. But I love the way, like, when he he never incorporated jazz, like had a jazzy movement. There was just influences in his style. Right. He like he never did like a tang, tang, ta tang. Right, tang, right, right. But he was, I mean, in terms of the sensibility, it was absolutely 100% a classical piece. But you couldn't help but hear jazz yeah. in that. Yeah. But in a very like cool and organic way. Absolutely. That like stands the test of time for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, that brings us to number six. And now we're getting into some people that are actually still around and still making music. So now we got to be careful. Yeah. Because they may be <laughs> listeners of You'll Hear It. No, number six is one of one of my favorite composers of uh, not only the 20th century, but this century too, and that's Philip Glass. What up, PJ? And uh, yeah, I mean, amazing visionary and uh, talk about an original sound. You know, it's within a few seconds, you know, you're listening to a Philip yeah. Glass He's very distinctive yeah. and very, you know, classical, but... American, and I think by way of being American and a composer, jazz is is part of that and an automatic influence. Yeah, on I mean, any of us. By the time he was making music, it was already the '60s. Yes, and so, so jazz had been established for decades at this absolutely. point. You know, so and that minimalism not only is used in you know jazz music, but pop music left and right. I mean. Mm -hmm. The influence is, you know. When I when I hear everybody. Philip Glass's music, I don't even think about like, oh, this is classical music or this is add an influence on jazz. I think more about New York, you know, sure. than that scene. Yeah. Because he was there were jazz musicians in his scene, you know, that he was, you know, hanging out with, and it was all kind of like just a downtown New York kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And when you think of New York, you can't help but leave off number seven. <laughs> 
Just kidding. It's like leave off or leave on? Leave yeah. on number oh, yeah, seven, yeah, we, we should go. say. It would be Steve Reich. That's right. Oh, yeah. He's unbelievable. And, yeah. And speaking of a tremendous influence on jazz, sampling not only um, harmonic and rhythmic things um, from jazz and classical idioms, but um, street scenes and yeah. taking in just literal sounds from the from the, the street and the city and putting that into these classically through composed pieces. Yeah, all of the all of the loop, the tape loop stuff, I think is is hugely influential in not just jazz, but you know, modern electronic music, hip hop. Hip hop, everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then also I think the the phases, piano phase, violin phase for me uh, are an amazing uh, exercise and discipline of composition and what you can do with very small subtle things i know it had a huge influence on like you know jazz jazz composers and third string composers and all that but but i think in just uh, american musicians in general absolutely and i think it's that you know the the minimalist and you know i mean i hate to even give it that label but i think that is is that are we allowed to call them that are they cool with it okay good because I always think about now, like the minimalist hipsters who give away their TVs, and I know it's a different movement from that. You know? <laughs> tiny, I don't, houses. I don't, <laughs> tiny houses, <laughs> right? Yeah, Steve Rice probably lives in like some mansion in Bel Air, you know, <laughs> with a whole bunch of stuff. No, but <laughs> eighteen musicians always around. <laughs> tape loops, you know, just, just tape everywhere. No, but I think that that you know what's cool about you know Phil Glass, Reich, and, and then a bunch of you know others closely related and, and even less or so related, like they started a movement in, in the same way that jazz musicians did an American music movement. And, you know, they're probably more aligned and, and seen in the classical world because that's where they go and have their pieces performed. But they kind of did that American artistic thing of saying, like, we're going to create our own thing. And I know there's a lot of European and Asian, play, you know, doing their thing that are related too. But, I mean, it's kind of like its own little subgenre there, which Absolutely. is cool. And now, I mean, it's to the point where their music, who was sampling, looping, remixing things from the earlier part of the century are being sampled, looped, remixed, and re-kind of distributed through different ensembles. For example, we've got uh, Friends in Alarm Will Sound, and yeah. they've done some incredible stuff yeah. with well, use of technology and their voices and their instruments and unconventional ways of kind of presenting these things. So that kind of is a good segue into we, we usually like to add some kind of bonus mm-hmm. for this so i wonder if you could talk a little about a little bit about young composers if there's anybody doing anything now that you think uh is really like lighting you up uh as far as i mean it doesn't have to have a connection with jazz but just you know what i mean it's funny you mentioned that i i feel like i'm sitting here with two of the more <laughs> Influential people, dude. I didn't set you in up for my that. Career, I wasn't, not, it was a nice not, setup. We're not pointing at ourselves right now. I would say, I would oh, say, no. Adam Manis. You mean the great, all right, Adam the Manis. great Adam that's, Manis, that's the great, great. Peter is, Martin. I'm glad I did that. That's Both great. seem to be extremely comfortable in any idiom in terms of writing. Um, another good friend of ours, Chris Stark, is doing amazing things. Christopher mm-hmm. Stark is an awesome composer. Uh, one of my very closest friends also, Stefan Freund, I think is doing great, great, great work. Yeah. Um, and there are just a lot of great people, not only in the world at large, but right here in our community in St. Louis. It's pretty incredible. So, 
I mean, I feel like in a lot of ways, um, yeah, no, that's great stuff. And, and, and Sean, we want to thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And, you know, as we say, if you keep your ears open, keep your ears to the ground. You'll hear it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the You'll Hear It podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave a rating or review. Yeah, I liked what I heard. Mm. I'm going to leave five stars, but <laughs> you guys can do whatever you want. Today's episode was brought to you by Open Studio, jazz lessons from jazz legends. Check out our brand new All Access Pass. All Access, what is that, like one or two courses you get? Dude, I said All Access. It's access to everything, every course, hundreds, ah, thousands, tens of thousands of lessons. <laughs> Wait, me, tens let me, of uh, thousands? Back up, back no, up. Definitely hundreds. <laughs> We're getting close to a thousand. Everything from Christian McBride, Peter Martin, Romero Lobombo, Gregory Hutchinson, um, Miles Davis, Mead Lux Lewis, okay, Jelly Roll it's Morton. Just getting ridiculous. No, <laughs> some of those. The first couple, we've got them. Check us out. OpenStudioNetwork.com. <laughs>